AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for January 5th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined online by Jim Clausing. Welcome, Jim. And, um, you know, this is the first program of the new year. What's your New Year's resolution? Well, my New Year's resolution is to uh, automate the repetitive stuff, the routine mm -hmm. stuff. I, I try to do this periodically, and I've noticed lately that there are some things I'm doing over and over and over again uh, manually. So one of my New Year's resolutions is I'm going to write myself some scripts here early in the mm -hmm. year to automate some of the routine stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess the real objective might be to not have to repeat anything, but given the fact that re re having to repeat things in is inevitable, the security problems are going away, yeah, that's a good. That's a good. Uh, that's a good plan. You know, it's uh, important to think strategically about the activities we're doing, and uh, you know, try to uh, free up some think time as opposed to doing uh, mundane activities. So, good idea. Welcome, John. John Hogeboom, and uh, what's your news? New Year's well, resolution. I have two time? because I you need a lot of improvement. For sure. <laughs> um, but the first one is um, to improve our threat intelligence lifecycle and how we mm -hmm. process threat intelligence. To do it more quickly get it actually into the systems that need it and then get that feedback loop of what they detect and and if they detect new uh, command and controls and things that we don't know about, kind of get that whole process working. And we've been working on that a long time, but um, yeah. I really want to focus in on that, at least for the first part of this year and see how quickly I can get that going a little bit better than it is today. Good. And then my second one was um, to just kind of only write long emails when it really requires it. So right. to try to keep my emails a little bit more terse, um, unless it really warrants, you know, a full analysis. Sometimes I'll, I'll spend a half hour to an hour with a full analysis, mm -hmm. and that should go someplace else, like maybe a collaboration portal where yeah. we can go back and look at it later instead of it getting lost in an email somewhere. Yeah. So I want to try to be more, um, more smart about how I do my email work. I agree. You know, good points. The um you know, obviously the threat intelligence, and we've talked about this before, that the attackers are getting more dynamic in terms of trying to make threat intelligence less usable. So it, automation around the threat intelligence mm -hmm. is really necessary in order to make it more usable. And I think, you know, their efforts with, uh, you know, DHS to try to get more automated feeds and uh, to try to get it into a position where we can do some of those things uh, and then we need to do that more generally across our sharing networks. And so a lot of efforts, but you've been doing a lot yeah, of work Matt, on that, that type of activity too, as well. Yeah. So to uh, make sure that we're making good use of the platform that's been put together for that purpose makes a lot of sense. And, and your point about emails, you know, when, uh, one of the best ways to not get attention to your email is to make it too long to comprehend. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the problem. That's why I don't get a lot of responses. It's too long, didn't read. <laughs> Okay, well, we have Matt Kaiser here today. Welcome back, Matt. And uh, what's your New Year's resolution? I also have two. Um, my, and they're sort of more personal than they are um, for the, the bigger scheme of AT&T. Mm -hmm. But one is to, to automate my backups. 
and most people won't think of that as a security resolution, but I think availability is important as well. So yeah, if I can't right. get to my files, you know, I'm up the creek. I'm uh, just surprised you haven't done that already. So that's the thing. I do it, but then I do it when I think about it. Right. And I don't often think about it. So automating it, I think it'd be a bunch of automation better. Yeah. being discussed here. Oh, yeah. In all of ours. Anyway. Too, too darn busy. <laughs> uh, and the second one is to read one technical book a month, which yeah. I started off strong last year. I got to about May, and I found other things to right. do. But well. I think I'm going to hold you to that. So as you oh, come no. on the threat track, yeah. do I have well, to do a like book? To, you read? We'd like so to hear about a book report. Now? Yeah, book report. <laughs> we have to do a book report. <laughs> <laughs> book like one page double space or single space? <laughs> Just tell us about. Okay, it. 500 words or, or more uh, or less or whatever it is. <laughs> Three bullets. Three bullets. <laughs> All right, and uh, of course I'm Brian Rexrod, and you know I I've. Uh, basically resolved to devote more time to an effort, by the way, not just time, but to, toward our strategic planning. You know, as a, a person that's responsible for the organization that's doing our threat analysis, I really think it's important that uh, we have basically a documented plan that describes what our strategy is, not for this year necessarily, I mean, certainly for this year, but looking at, into the out years and anticipating what threats we might be seeing in the future and uh, making sure that we have activities in the direction to prepare for that. So uh, that's my resolution. So all these are good resolutions. And uh, so let's get back to more the here and now. All right. <laughs> and um, voter databases, I guess there was an exposure. Yeah, uh, two databases actually. So um, there's a researcher named Chris Vickery. Uh, I believe he was poking around looking for insecure MongoDB databases that were connected to the mm. internet. And it looks like he found two of them that both contained what I'd describe as, I guess, voter registered voter information. Now, mm. one of them, it, it seems it was tied somehow, and it's not conclusive yet because the owners have not said this is our data. They've actually said this is not us. Mm -hmm. um, related to some group called Nation Builder. Okay. Um, but he shared this information with the owner of databreaches.net and with Steve Reagan, I think, of CSO Online. Mm -hmm. And they've looked at this data and they've come to the same conclusions. But this is, it's personal information. Mm -hmm. Technically, a lot of it is public information, like your address. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's other things that are being collected, things that are specific to your voting preferences that kind of get sensitive. And actually, mm -hmm. I think at, at scale, when you have a lot of public information at scale, it becomes, and this is probably debatable, and I'd like to hear what you guys have to say, but it becomes a little more dangerous to have it all in one place. Because the idea of, if I can grab the list of everybody in the US who votes mm -hmm. and use it I don't know, send spam or, or target particular groups of voters for reasons that are, you know, mm -hmm. suspicious, whatever. I, I feel there's yeah. a concern there. So. Oh, you're absolutely right. You know, this has been, all, this is actually one of the classic issues, particularly in, in databases that are perhaps not holding classified information. Mm -hmm. And, then, you know, I'm speaking in terms of the context of the government where they have classified information. Mm -hmm. You know, an individual thing, like, an a pizza order at the Pentagon oh, yeah. is not a classified piece of information. But if you have hundreds and hundreds of pizzas being ordered and you normally don't have that, that piece of information is an indicator that there's something going on. It doesn't necessarily tell you what's going on. Wasn't there a story like was it the invasion of Iraq or something? <laughs> right? That's exactly right. Yeah, so yeah, I remember that. It dates back to that. So, but it's those types of things that are, that in aggregate become significant, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, so the, it, it's, it's right to be concerned about that sort of thing. So that's the first one. That database is no longer online. So whatever, whoever's it was, mm -hmm. um, and of course, Chris Vickery is not saying where he found this database or who it belongs to, which is probably mm -hmm. for the best, because 
It could have been somebody had already stolen it. That's the thing. There's, there's no indication of how long yeah. it was online. He found a second database. So the first one had about 191 million, million voter registration information. So that's, that's kind of scary. Uh, the second mm -hmm. one was another unsecured Mongo database. Um, this one had several different lists in it, but 19 million profiles, profiles on voters with their private interests. Mm. And it seems this one is most likely connected to a group called United in Faith, who I believe shares information about churchgoers or something, mm. okay. it seems, and their interests and whether or not they would be someone you might want to talk to as a pastor and say, I realize you're very strong in your religion. I know you're, and this is some examples, you know, to hunting and fishing and going mm -hmm. to church and, and things like that. I'd like to talk to you about how you're, you know, whether or not you're voting. Because mm. you might be able to say, mm -hmm. based on these things that this, you know about this person, right. they would probably vote, probably conservative. In a particular, yeah. some way or another, yes. Okay. <laughs> Again, this database is no longer online, which is yeah. good as well. There were some interesting points made in the articles that the state laws governing voter information like this wildly vary. Mm. Some have no laws. Some have laws that say you can share it or you can't share it, mm -hmm. or certain organizations can use it and others can't. So it was, a, it was a pretty deep dive into exactly how this data gets treated and things that I really hadn't thought about myself. Hmm. You know, I hadn't really thought about it either. So uh, perhaps this will heat up the topic a little bit more and get a little more attention around it. Very good. You know, one of the things I think uh, you sort of stumbled across is that he, he found these databases of Apparently by scanning, is that? Well, that's the thing. He hasn't said how he found them, I think, in order to protect other, prevent other people from finding them. Mm -hmm. My speculation is that you would use some sort of either existing scanning database like right. Shodan mm -hmm. or just looking for the common ports that Mongo uses mm -hmm. and then do what everybody who else who scans these sorts of things would do is try default credentials and see what happens. Yeah. Um, uh, well, the reason I wanted just to encourage folks that you're, you're not, if you're exposed to the internet, you're getting scanned. Yes. There's, there are public databases available that information. You should go to use it and find out more about your systems because the bad guys are doing it. Absolutely. So it's, a, it's effectively an arms race in that regard. So yeah, while you've been listening to this follows. program, you've probably been scanned at least by a thousand probes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good possibility. <laughs> right. Okay, so John, let's go to you here and um, I guess this is a different flavor of things. This is where people are starting to get a little more destructive. You know, at, before we get into this, I actually was a little bit surprised we didn't see any significant destructive malware events in 2015. Right. It is the last real significant one that I, at least that I think of is the uh, Sony Pictures event. Right. It was in November 2014. 2015, right. we kind of skirted by. And um, I think it was because we sort of predicted that you know, destructive malware was going to be a big thing. <laughs> I mean, the ransomware certainly was, but this looks like it's uh, it's taken it to another level. Tell us. Yeah, so this story, and there's still some loose holes because we haven't really mm -hmm. gotten a full analysis of what's been reported here. But basically what happened is on December 23rd in the Ukraine, hundreds of thousands of customers of a regional power authority lost power. Mm -hmm. When they did some analysis of it, they realized, okay, there was some malware on these machines and they were intentionally disrupted and sabotaged. So the interesting thing, then some people started to, some of the researchers like ESET and ISET partners were doing some analysis and they're trying to piece together some loose ends. So this mm -hmm. is still a little speculative. However, um, they do have strong suspicion that the black energy malware was in play here. We've mm -hmm. talked about black energy on the program before. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of a sourced from Russia 
piece of malware, mm -hmm. uh, mostly for backdoor crimeware or uh, other types of uh, espionage type mm -hmm. of activities. They also noticed that it was recently updated because um, they're monitoring people using the black energy. So the toolkit itself had been updated with a kill disk function, uh, mm -hmm. which basically creates, it basically causes uh, deletion of certain parts of the hard drive right. so that it won't be able to boot anymore. And then it also has some functions for sabotage specifically for of industrial control systems, which mm -hmm. is interesting. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of piecing it all together. Not to say that that is a nail in the coffin as to who is behind it, but it is pointing in that direction. Suggestive. Suggestive, yeah. right. Um, there's also a new backdoor uh, SSH, uh, SSH backdoor that has been recently added to Black Energy. So other interesting thing is Black Energy is tied to the Sandworm Gang, who we've talked about on the show before with some other cases. I can't remember what the other case was that we had maybe last year or in 2014. Hmm. Uh, but they, I think they've targeted like NATO, some other organizations. Mm -hmm. um, and they have strong ties to Russia. And this was a pretty sophisticated group, if I remember correctly. Yeah, there, there are a lot of groups that make lofty claims, and then there are others that actually do it. Uh, right, right. <laughs> um, the other interesting thing is is that, um, according to ESET, that the they have evidence that the Ukrainian power authorities in this case, uh, where they got this black energy malware from, uh, were infected using booby-trapped macro in you know Microsoft Word documents, right. which we've seen a lot of that. Uh, going on where you get an Excel Recently, or Word certainly. document, you open it up and it says, oh, you know, in the document it'll say, uh, enable macros up above with a little arrow pointing up there in order to see the whole content of this document. And people just, oh, okay, and they click on it and then boom, it runs the mm -hmm. macro virus that dumps something down on the machine. We've been seeing a lot of uh, other malware families using mm -hmm. this technique as well. So not a surprising technique, however, maybe surprising that whoever is opening these documents got spearfished and is on the same machine that manages the power systems. So that's a little, uh, you would think you'd want to separate that a little bit. Yeah, it's possible, but they could have also pivoted. But you, I agree with you. True, you that's true. Keep they could have pivoted sort of once they're inside. Critical right. stuff on a, uh, a separate you know, network segment. Right. That's a good aspect. I have a good point, though. It could be that they pivoted once they were in. So um, anyway, an interesting turn of events. Uh, I miss the predictions. Uh, episode for last year. My prediction, had I was been able to make it, was that uh, the interest in industrial control systems and SCADA is going to kind of escalate. And it was kind of based on the whole destabilization of yeah. uh, the world in term, terms of, uh, you know, we were kind of tight with a lot of other countries and maybe mm -hmm. A lot of countries are in it for themselves lately, it seems like. So I think there might be more renewed interest. I don't, I'm not saying that that, you know, that this was a nation state motivated thing. We know there's a lot of things with Russia and Ukraine that aren't quite cool. Well, it appears really. to be politically motivated. Yeah, probably. Sort of. Suggestive of that. All right. Okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll see how this plays out and uh, see if other events start to pop up. Mm-hmm. So Jim, let's go to you here, and uh, I guess one of the things we'd like to try to do to avoid some of the, <laughs> or at least perhaps the uh, the remote, um, you know, access to databases, for example, would be passwordless authentication. I guess Google's trying something. Can you tell us a little more about it? Yeah, this one got my attention uh, right around Christmas. Apparently, Google has started a limited trial program with a small number of users to basically take passwords out of the authentication process. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about passwords all the time and the issues with them and, 
you know, recommending two-factor authentication and all of that. What they what Google is trying to do with this with this trial and whether or whether or not they extend this beyond just a trial, it, you know, remains to be seen. But essentially, what's going to happen with this is when you go to log in, you get the lo login screen. You type in your you know, email address, and then instead of entering a password, it will send a uh, something to your mobile device, your mobile phone, or your tablet, and ask, "Are you really trying to log in on on this other PC? Yes or no?" Mm -hmm. And if you say yes, then it'll go ahead and continue your your login, and you can do whatever you want, you know, with Gmail or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a little different from from things that they've tried in the past. Um, you know, I use the Google Authenticator for two-factor uh, authentication to a, a number of of services that I use, but um, this one you won't be actually typing in a password, which is one of the things that people have have issues with. Uh, mm -hmm. It'll just send this notification to another device that, in theory, you should have on your person, and you approve or disapprove, and if you approve, then you can continue. So for folks who who never lose their phones, <laughs> this might be a good option. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that it's, it's the ultimate solution to the authentication problem, because uh, you know somebody gets their hand on your hands on your phone, yeah, they can still pretend to be you. Mm -hmm. um, you know there are there are still a number of issues with it, but you know we'll see we'll see how it, how well it works. I I think Yahoo actually uh, did something similar back in October. They they have an app you can put on your phone that behaves pretty much the same way. Mm -hmm. It sends, uh, you know, it launches the app and says, "Are you really trying to log in on this device?" And you say yes or no, and then it goes or not. So, is this solution that, that Google's providing is it exclusively a uh, an app-based solution? Is it? I mean, is it uh, specific to Android? Uh, no, actually, it 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 works on both Android and iOS, uh, from what I've been reading. I have not actually seen seen it. I'm not part of the the small group of users. I've mm -hmm. just seen a lot of people reported it. I guess it first first showed up on Reddit and then uh, a number of other folks picked up on it. There's there's actually a Google group that's public that you can see that the users you know, are having conversation in this Google group on the issues they're seeing and so forth. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, good. That's the, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to try to make a little bit of a distinction of here is that uh, there are a number of two-factor, what, what they refer to as two-factor, I, I mean, the, the back-channel communications mm -hmm. method. This is a back-channel communications, but there are a number of them that use texting as a back-channel path mm -hmm. with the sort of, I believe, the mindset that the texting goes to a device. But texting doesn't necessarily go to a device. It goes to an account, a texting account, which is normally delivered to a device, but there may also be a web login that mm -hmm. is based on a password that allows access to that 
that same account and get mm -hmm. the messages. Yep. And you know, with if you're uh, an iCloud user or with an Apple messaging, iMessaging user, you know, or perhaps don't know, but you certainly can go and log into iCloud and get your te your text messages that way. And so it's it's important to really understand what the accesses are and, and things like this. If this is an app-based solution, it appears to be. Uh, where the app is effectively dedicated to being that back-channel communications and it's controlled in that manner, that's probably a much stronger solution than a lot of these other solutions that are essentially just uh, you know sending it to an alternative, potentially compromised path. And you've also got systems, I think, I think iMessage actually lets you push it to multiple devices. So if you're yeah. trying to do some two-factor auth with your phone over here and your laptop is across the room and your kid is using it, he may see that. You yeah, know, you don't. It's most likely not not the bad guy. <laughs> most likely not the bad guy. <laughs> but it is uh, certainly a possibility. And um, you know, in in some of these cases, if you have notifications that pop up, you don't even have to have. You know, if you've lost your device and somebody takes that opportunity, they don't even have to necessarily have the pen to get into the device. Oh, because it's it may do the little drop down and say, "You've got a new message, and here's yeah, its so, contents." Yeah. So, mm. you know, be careful about how these think through what those alternative paths are and you know one of the I, I think Matt you and I were talking about it earlier you know sometimes we forget our password we just use the reset process oh, yeah. almost always the reset process is basically based on access to your email account yep and uh, so really that's the one and you know Brian Krebs made a big point about this in his in his book spam nation mm -hmm. um, just kind of going with the theme of book reviews. Oh, I read that <laughs> one already. He, made, <laughs> he, uh, you know, he made a very strong point that you know you really have to have good security around your email account because a lot of things are predicated on access to that account. Yeah, yeah. I remember the the Matt Honan hack a while ago. We recorded that on the show a couple of years ago, and the whole idea was that you know they could escalate from one account to the next using email addresses and right. things like that, and eventually, you know, completely wipe some devices. So it's, yeah. it's part of that chain. Yeah, I mean, we, we could probably list. Uh, 10 notable attacks in the last year, usually against social media accounts, things like that, yep. where it's been getting access to email accounts, resetting passwords, and going through that path. So mm -hmm. nevertheless, make sure you understand what the accesses are. I like the idea of a dedicated app for that uh, back-channel communications process so that you know exactly where it's, if it's implemented correctly. <laughs> Okay, so uh, Matt, let's go back to you here, mm -hmm. and uh, we'll talk, uh, I guess there's uh, sort of a new theme around home security systems, yep. trying to make homes, uh, not just making them secure, but more automation. Mm -hmm. uh, but in that transition or the uh, implementation of these things, we're gonna have a few hiccups along the way. Yep. So, so is the that devil a good place to give it to you? <laughs> the devil is definitely in the details here. It so, is in the details. Um, research came out from Rapid7, um, one of the researchers, Phil Bosco, took a look at the Comcast Xfinity Home Security System, which is an integrated security system that allows you to manage things, you know, over Wi-Fi, over mm -hmm. the internet, see how your home is doing, and it uses um, Zigbee Wireless in mm -hmm. order for you to. So they, they got a central unit, and then sensors are over the house, and it, it works much like in any other alarm system where you have a central unit and then sensors. Uh, older units, I guess. Oh, in the old days, you would have wires run to each one of these. Right. But here you have Zigbee. Physically within the house. Physically within right. the house. In theory, protected because there's nothing, you know. It, you it's, have to get in the house to be able to. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. That cleared up a lot better than I could have. Um, but now that you're using wireless, there's a whole different attack surface. Mm -hmm. And what uh, Mr. Bosco found is that if you are able to interrupt the communications between a sensor and the main unit, 
typically what an alarm system should do is say, hey, one of my sensors just went missing and mm -hmm. throw a fit, you know, mm -hmm. trigger an alarm. Turns out that's not the case here. It fails open, which means that nothing occurs. Mm -hmm. So if you're able to prevent that communication and in the test they used tinfoil to wrap around that sensor and prevent it from transmitting, uh, when the, and they, they would open that sensor open, it should say, hey, there's an alarm, someone actually opened the window or whatever mm -hmm. sensor it is. Nothing happened. So you, would, you wouldn't necessarily wrap somebody's window in tinfoil in order to trigger this in the real world, right. you would use a jammer. But that's the problem. You're able to disable a sensor mm -hmm. simply by interrupting the communications path. Yeah. Um, well, and, and this is 2.4 gigahertz, which is, you know, older wireless phones, mm -hmm. Wi-Fi, Lots of things. Layout, all kinds of uh, devices. It's, a, it's actually basically an uncontrolled spectrum. So the possibility of jam unintentional jamming is a, is a possibility. And, and that is one of the interesting things that keeps coming to my mind is while someone could intentionally jam this and cause the system to fail and you can use it as a way of breaking into a house, the possibility of it happening accidentally because of this interference might be the reason it's configured this way. Mm. If in testing they found out that they've got, you know, if you, your house is in a very saturated area where mm -hmm. there's plenty of 2.4 gigahertz to go around, maybe they got tired of all the alarms that kept mm. happening. So while that's, you know, that's one thing you can kind of say, I understand why they did it. On the other hand, in order for it to be a functioning alarm system, it has to alarm. Mm -hmm. The other problem that they discovered is not only can you knock it off very simply, apparently it takes a very long and variable amount of time for that sensor to reassociate. So they said up to three hours between knocking it off and finally getting that sensor back in. Now they didn't say what the methodology was for determining whether it was associated or not. There's not too many technical details in the paper, uh, but it's definitely an interesting read. Yeah. Um, I'd like to see more. Yeah, I guess the, the other subtlety in this is Zigbee itself is a mesh network. So devices depend on other devices to communicate back to the home base. Mm -hmm. There may be relay nodes in there. So if you can knock out key nodes, it may cause others to at least be disrupted for a period of time, if not hmm. actually I, cut I off. actually thought of it in the reverse way, that if you had more than one node, and because it's a mesh, there'd be a secondary path That's in some possibility. cases. Yeah, yeah, maybe it would self-heal. But I guess if it was far enough away from those outer nodes, then you might run yeah. into an it's, issue. So it's a, I guess it's a, it's a give and take. In that regard. Yeah. So at, at this Depends point, on how it's laid out. Yeah. Right. Sorry. I don't know. I was just <laughs> saying at this point, it sounds like they're going to have to patch and change that, that off that, the, the mm -hmm. time delay between what's an acceptable amount of, of loss of a, of a sensor. I, you know, as, as somebody who likes to tinker, I think I would like to see a system that allows you to tune that for your own needs. You know, if you happen to realize that you're in a place where it's going to cause problems, mm -hmm. you can make that decision, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Maybe some people don't want to. Maybe some people just want to have a box slot into their house, some stuff in their windows, and they think, I'm good. I don't have to worry about it. But mm -hmm. I, I think I'd like to play with those variables and see what's best for me. Yeah, that's a, that's a good option. So uh, one of the things I guess you pointed out is that the base station is UL listed. That's what I found. It, it seemed that on their site, they said that the, the base station itself is UL listed, which mm -hmm. I think you were saying before means that they've gone through a certain set of standards to check and say this is the way an alarm system has to behave in order for it to be an alarm system. Right, but it sounds that if it's in the context of the base station, it may only address that point from the base station back to the reporting platform, you know, the, basically the monitoring platform or the monitoring service itself. 
And you know, one of the significances, uh, significant aspects of this is that there must be a keep alive in place. That is, if the signal is lost, that's considered an alarm condition. And you know, it's to deal with that old, you know, the, the classic case and you know, we see in every movie is you go and cut, cut, the, cut the line before you go and burglarize a house or mm -hmm. break into a system. And uh, so the, the question is, and I haven't verified this, does that extend out to the sensors themselves considering there's, uh, as, as you pointed out earlier, this being a wireless system versus what we had presumed to be a protected wireline service in the, in the traditional. That's a good solutions. question, because even if you had individually UL-approved sensors and individually UL-approved central box, if it's the, the entire system yeah. that has to be you know, yeah. assessed. Yeah. So uh, anyway, this is, uh, I think this is a good example of that sort of the growing pains, if you will, of IoT, where you have a lot of interconnected devices, in particular over wireless networks and dealing with the uh, intricacies, the details, mm -hmm. the devil in the details associated with security. And uh, you know, I think that's one of the ten or so commandments that <laughs> we had identified in our collection of uh, security commandments is that you have to pay attention to detail in this business. All right, John. So let's go back to you. Okay. And um, so this <laughs> difficult to block JavaScript ransomware. You know, we've talked about some portable ransom, or portable malware previously. Right. This is the first case I'm aware of where we have portable. Yes, however, it's not really that they've actually seen real cases of this being mm -hmm. cross-portable across various uh, platforms, but I'll kind of give you the breakdown of it. So it's a, another family of ransomware, they're calling it Ransom32, and it's not really well detected when they had done this report maybe a week or so ago, but today when I checked up on VirusSoul and some of the other AV vendors, it looks like there's a lot more uptake now that people are taking notice of this family of malware and detecting it. But it has some interesting aspects. A lot of things we've seen before, but in conjunction, it makes it interesting. So if you go on the Tor network, you can go to a builder tool that will allow uh, you to build your own custom binary. Mm -hmm. uh, so you go in, you fill out some forms, you put your Bitcoin address in there where you want to get the money that for all the ransoms that you distribute, and they will send you a payload that's kind of tuned for your specific uh, crimeware or ransomware mm -hmm. campaign that you're running. So it's kind of a software as, as a service type model. Uh, once you do that, it downloads a very large bundle. It's a 22 meg bundle, which is kind of different than a lot of malware we see. Although we have seen some malware that is very large, but mostly we suspect that's because AV will leave that alone. So there's a lot mm -hmm. of, a, I don't think that's the case here, but I know there's some cases where there's been intentional malware that's a really, in a really large file because that will prevent AV from looking at it because it's just too big for it to want to scan through. And they, I don't know what that cutoff rate is, but I don't think 22 meg is it. The other interesting aspect of this one is it uses um, something called nw.js, which is, if you're familiar with Node, uh, Node is kind of a, um, like a web server framework for, for making like server-side JavaScript mm -hmm. as part of your application. So nw.js is basically they've taken that code base and made it so that you can write desktop client side applications in JavaScript and it has the ability to access a lot of the core functionality of that platform too. So it's not protected like a sandbox. Mm. You can write to the registry and you can do all kinds of stuff all right. through JavaScript, which is kind of interesting. Um, it also has a Tor client built in and that's how it, what it uses to go back to the command and control. 
So that would be encoded or encrypted at least, mm -hmm. so you wouldn't really be able to see it on the network, or you might have to look for Tor activity have in order trouble to trouble tracing back. Right, pick going. it up. It could be based on what they're looking at here. It could be really easily ported to Linux or Mac OS X uh, because it's written in NW.js. Uh, but they actually haven't observed that they've done that. And there's right. some other little bit of components that they're actually using that are very Windows specific, like the Tor client is, they have a couple other uh, uh, VBS scripts that are running to do certain little functions that wouldn't run on necessarily on all these other platforms, so they'd have to convert that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then once it's installed, it starts encrypting lots of different files. So it's more than just like your normal Office files. They do like JPEGs and MPEGs and all kinds of, I don't even know why, but in any event, they're encrypting a lot of things uh, with AES 128-bit encryption and a, a different key per file, mm -hmm. um, which makes it even more complicated, as you, as we know. So, just wanted to be on the lookout for. Uh, it kind of bugs me that, you know, they've set up kind of a, a front door, uh, software as a service kind of thing to make it really easy for the script kiddies yeah. to go out there and say, oh, I want to start my own ransomware yeah. botnet here. Uh, and just go download the stuff without really having to do any legwork. We've themselves. seen some things kind of like this before, and um, you know, it, particularly with this software. So this is a little confusing to say. Software is a service to build your malware, mm -hmm. but is the command and control also a service? Yeah, I believe so. I think it goes back up there, and then right. you could log into the portal and see how much, how many infected hosts have checked in and how much money you've, right. you've generated from it. I and think then they take the, a cut too, I'm not positive on right, that. Well, that's a good possibility, but it, it, regardless from the builder provider's point of view, that is the folks that have created this tool, they're basically, basically having others do their dirty work in terms of yeah. recruiting or compromising devices through this, this tool, and they probably have their if the back end is theirs, they're probably taking a cut of whatever the ransom is as well, part of Well, they may be model. taking a cut of the ransom, but they also have access to the machines That's that true. have been compromised right. to right. do whatever they want to do. So before the ransom is, and you know, the encryption is done, they probably have an opportunity, at the very least, to steal whatever information is there or do other things that might, that might you know, they might be motivated to do. So uh, this is one of these things where, you know, it seems like a tool from the, from the uh, user's point of view, from their point of view, it's uh, the, <laughs> the folks that use their tool are the tool. <laughs> I'm kind of curious. If they say they're using an individual key for every single file they encrypt. Yeah, so it talks to the C2 okay, to get it when it first starts up, I guess. Wow, that's, okay, I was just wondering, because anytime you talk about ransomware, the immediate question is how are they managing their keys? And are they being stored locally? And can somebody write a tool to get your files back. Yeah, I didn't get to, in the details of actually how it gets, where those keys are stored and whatnot, but um, okay. it did say yeah, a new key per file, so. Wow. Yeah, so cloud-based botnet services. Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well thanks, John. And uh, Jim, let's go to you again, and uh, I guess you had made an observation, a note of, uh, you know, I guess a milestone at the end of uh, 2015. Tell us a little more. Yeah, I actually noticed this one on the Nanoc mailing list over the weekend. Um, they noted that IPv6 penetration had reached 10% on December 31st, 2015. Mm -hmm. That means from whatever their observation point was, IPv6 traffic made up 10% of the traffic on the internet 
as of the end of of 2015. So that's that is a, a a big milestone. But when they say, is it really on the internet, or is it people accessing Google using IPv6? Yeah, if I understand correctly, this this information is from Google, and um, if if I read it correctly, it's based on the number of visits to Google. Okay. So how many of those are based on IPv6 versus IPv4? And uh, certainly, you know, I think it's uh, it, at the very least interesting how quickly is accelerating. That is the growth. Uh, it's it's not a linear growth. It's a, basically an, a, an accelerating curve toward IPv6. And, uh, you know, I think the significance from a security standpoint here is that, uh, you know, it it's important that organizations pay attention. I think a lot of business enterprises are probably still IPv4 internally. Mm -hmm. I mean, why not? But in terms of offering services to the internet and providing protection services for that, protection from denial of service attacks, uh, mm -hmm. your analytical capabilities, those types of things, you still, you really have to be paying more and more attention to the IPv6 aspect of it. Exactly. I December of 2015 was also the 20th anniversary of the release of the RFCs that defined IPv6. So it's taken 20 years to get here, but you know we've had we've been talking about this for a number of years now. Mm -hmm. You know, people have been you know the sky is falling. We're going to run out of IPv4 addresses, and you know they've there are no more blocks of IPv4 addresses to be handed out. So now they're getting reused, but mm -hmm. uh, and now you know we're seeing uh, mobile devices that are getting native IPv6, and so with the proliferation of those, you know we need to be able to we need to be able to monitor IPv6 traffic. We need to you know all of our tools that we've built up over the years for IPv4. We need to make sure we've got the same capabilities because more and more of the traffic, you know, as, as you said, it, internally within the enterprise, it may not move over to IPv6 quite as quickly. Mm -hmm. But what we're offering to the public because of the lack of IPv4 addresses, we're going to see more and more uh, IPv6. And I think John had noted uh, on, the, on this chart here that it was back in probably in 2010 sometime that it crossed over from 6 to 4 and Teredo being the majority of the IPv6 problem traffic to native IPv6 being yeah, and then it never looked yeah. back it just kept going up like you see on the chart here yeah it's a nice exponential curve there now mhm mm you know I, I i think another aspect of this that i found Actually, counterintuitive to me. I, I certainly didn't expect this, and I'm not sure exactly uh, what the explanation is. But uh, you know, the other tab on this chart. I, this is just a captured website, but the other uh, tab shows the uh, distribution by country. I mean, not a detailed distribution, but basically shows that. Um, and I was surprised to find that the United States had the greatest number of IPv6 users visiting Google. Uh, where I would have expected more IPv6 in other countries. My rationale, my thought process around this is that, you know, when the address space was being divvied up originally, the IPv4 address space, it was, you know, it was a United States project at the time. And uh, a lot of the address space got scooped up by U.S. entities. And uh, 
consequently, as other countries were developing and growing their internet presence, they got all the leftover pieces. And uh, so they were tending to run out of IPv4 address space more quickly. So it's not clear to me why, like I would have expected much denser in Asia than in the United States, but it turns out that it's, uh, it's sort of the other way around. So I don't have a clear explanation for that. Perhaps it's some sort of a bias in the data that uh, was used to measure this, but hmm. never I, I would wonder if it has something to do with very specific client sets, like mobility clients or Internet of Things, or if there's a particular, maybe even a vendor that by default turns to IPv6 before 4, and I'd mm -hmm. like to know. Mm. All yeah. this is just guessing and, and interesting yeah. theories, but. Nevertheless. Okay, so uh, speaking of mobility, mm -hmm. <laughs> there's no, it's always interesting to talk about the next piece of mobile malware. Yep. So this one is, is pretty clever. Um, uh, Symantec is calling it Spywaller. And basically, it's, it's spyware. It, it does all the things you'd expect uh, mobile spyware to do, steal contacts, mm -hmm. you know, phone numbers, all the usual private information that's on a phone. The interesting thing that it does that's different is that it will, one, it pretends to be a Google service, which most things, you know, there's no such thing as Google service. But I guess in, in China, since they don't have access to the actual Google services set, Maybe it's more likely that people will fall for that. I'm mm -hmm. not sure. It's definitely Chinese targeted because not only does it have that, the, the main feature is that it uses DroidWall, mm -hmm. which is a well-known Android firewall tool, to block connections to Chihu 360, which is a Chinese antivirus company. So mm -hmm. if this thing gets onto your phone, it'll prevent Chihu 360 from updating or using any of its cloud services, whatever they happen to be. So it's interesting. It is interesting. That's an old trick, right? We used to see malware all the time update the Etsy host file on your machine or mm -hmm. whatever, the host file in Windows to say, like, McAfee's here and Semantic's here, just null route them to localhost or something. Mm -hmm. so. so I believe that in order to run DroidWall, your phone has to be rooted. So again, this seems to be the case where people who are rooting their phones, and while I know there are definitely good reasons to do it, most users don't need to be doing this, and for them it, it tends to be it tends to be more of an exposure to more malware than anything else. Yeah. So. so generally speaking, our recommended recommendation is don't root your device. Yeah. But or jailbreak it. Or jail. It's basically, it's not his term. But if you do, make sure you know what you're doing. Absolutely, and only install stuff. No, don't and install this. Everybody one thinks sure. they know what they're doing. <laughs> Except that's no, the problem. We do. <laughs> well, right? Uh, I don't know. Oh, well, maybe. But. <laughs> Yeah, this is until you find out that you don't know what you're doing. Right, yeah, the absolutely. Is to think you know what you're doing. All right, well, uh, this is something I know what we're doing here. So <laughs> we're going to go take a look at the internet activity over the last uh, week or so here. And uh, I, I think, generally speaking, there are no surprises here. We'll go through it and uh, take a look at some of these a little more closely, so you get some idea what's uh, what's going on. You know, first on the list is port 23 TCP Telnet that Internet of Things breaking into a lot of devices that expose Telnet and shouldn't be using Telnet at all. Followed by port 80 TCP. You know, this is, you know, obviously there's a lot of scanning. We usually see this a little farther down in the list. It's a little higher than usual. It's gone up uh, three notches from, uh, from last week. But when I took a look at it, it's really, I, I would call it a statistical anomaly. It doesn't look like there's any real significant activity or unusual activity associated with uh, uh, the scanning on port 80. Followed by port 22, you know, we've seen cases where um, home router devices have a backdoor you can turn on port 22 and uh, possibly have a default password associated with that and 
uh, that's been exploited. And then uh, followed by 53413, this is the Netis router backdoor. We can talk about that a little bit. I've got a graph to show the activity there. And then uh, port 53 UDP. Uh, this one jumped up significantly, but it turned out that it, that's really sort of a spike in activity. This, this particular pie chart from uh, yesterday, January 4th, by the way. And then uh, followed by 1900 UDP. We're gonna dig into that one a little bit more closely, followed by 445 TCP and 443 TCP. Last on here is 1911 TCP, which is associated with industrial control systems. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have a further graph of this, but this, is, this was actually a research activity. Right, yeah, some uh, research is looking associated for with, um, with uh, malicious actors, but right. uh, certainly one to be paying attention to that is if you have industrial control systems, you wanna be uh, paying attention to that. So one of the things I haven't shown for a while, I thought I'd bring it up, is uh, this notion of aggression factor. And this is really basically looking at the number of probes, that is, we saw in the previous chart from the top 10, but also comparing that relative to the number of sources that are performing that probing. So it gives you some idea of how fast each one of the devices is actually doing its probing. One of the things you can basically ascertain from this is whether there's software that's being used to sort of perhaps subvert or you know shortcut the TCP right, connection like the process or how you know yeah. whether they're trying to hide or not and uh, and uh, you know in general and uh, you know it's kind of interesting to see that the port 1911 TCP is actually they've you know these researchers have put some effort into making their scanning activity more aggressive more efficient than uh, a lot of these others. I don't think we've ever seen anything that has gone above about eight in terms of the aggression factor. Most of the others look like they're just, you know, doing sort of a conventional make a connection, see if it, you get a response, then move on to the next, and possibly doing that in a multi-threaded fashion. Uh, we mentioned the, the scan probes on port 53 UDP. Again, this is DNS, and uh, that this spike here that we see uh, that just had occur occurred actually yesterday, late in the day yesterday, is the uh, cause behind that. I mean, obviously it's a spike in probing activity. I think it's associated with a reflective denial service attack that, uh, and there have been uh, more attacks of those. We're gonna take a little closer look at that uh, later on. And then looking at the number of sources scanning on port 53 UDP, uh, we see that there have been some spiky activities. Again, most of those uh, spiky activities associated with sort of groups of reflective denial service attacks that have, uh, have taken place. Now, if we look at the last year of activity, this is actually looking at port 53 UDP as a source port. That gives us an idea. I mean, there's some legitimate DNS activity in there, mm -hmm. but it gives us an idea of how much DNS is being used in reflective denial service attack activity. As you can see, about halfway through the year last year, there was a transition where more attacks were using DNS and you can see the reference lines here where we are showing the sort of the peak level of activity compared to what sort of a current average level of activity and then comparing it with sort of the average level of activity that we were seeing in the first part of last year. So we're seeing definitely a uh, you know more activity directing toward using DNS for reflective denial service attacks. And then if we overlay that that is, the blue is showing the DNS here. The red is showing use of port 1900 UDP. That's Simple Service Discovery Protocol, which is really a local area network protocol. Uh, I think a lot of ISPs have started to sort of block that activity and for the reason that it was being abused significantly for reflective denial service attacks. As that blocking was being put into place, 
it was becoming less effective for the attackers. And so I think that's part of the motivation that they're uh, moving toward using uh, reflective DNS activities. In aggregate, the activity appears to have, uh, you know, we're seeing a little bit less of that reflective denial service attack activity, but there's certainly an awful lot of it still in existence. It certainly is nice to see scanning on a port like that go down, actually, for it's a It's good to see it's going down. And, and technically, this isn't scanning, but this is, this is uh, basically byte activity on, with the source right. port of that. Yeah. So it's the response side of these, uh, of these requests. Now, looking at scan probes on port 23 TCP, well, basically, there was a little bit of a break over the, um, over the holidays between Christmas and New Year's, and uh, it seems to have sort of revived itself. Actually, it goes back to even Thanksgiving, where uh, the stuff was sort of trailing off. But uh, just today, it looks like uh, the activity has sort of started to revive itself, and so we can expect to see Telenet at the top of the list in the days going forward as well. We're looking at 60 days of activity in this graph, by the way. And then looking at the number of sources that are doing that scanning, there has been an increase today, not a significant increase in, that, in the, uh, the number of sources, but there's a possibility that more recruiting will take place and that number may go back, in the, uh, back up in the next several days. And then looking at the scan probes on port 53413, this was again that Netis router backdoor. We're showing the URL for the, uh, the link that describes this particular backdoor. As we'd observed and reported on a couple of times mm -hmm. in, the, uh, in December, you know, this is activity where they basically spray out the script as a part of, you know, basically in a packet. And if the device accepts it, it will uh, basically execute that and then become part of the botnet as a part of this recruiting activity. Looking at these most sources doing the probing, well, we sort of covered this a little bit, port 23 at the top, followed by 53, 413 UDP, port 445 TCP, and then uh, we have a little bit of a move up on, uh, actually move down for uh, 27015 UDP. No real big deal in this one. This is uh, not a lot of movement on this particular uh, graph. So. We'll move on. That's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. We certainly welcome your feedback, especially with the new year. In fact, uh, why don't you share with us your New Year's resolution from a security standpoint, especially. You can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech channel. Uh, it's on YouTube as well as on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at attsecurity. So I'd like to... Thank you, Matt. Thanks, John. Thank you, Jim. I'm Brian Rexford. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.